Anyways, my name is Bill Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. I'm on the teaching team and part of the pastoral team, which really doesn't mean much other than just to be a servant of Christ. And I get the privilege to be up here. I will say this, if you're not connected in a community group, find me, because we would love you to be connected in a community group. I know Dinner for Eight is kind of that first step to connecting with people, but beyond Dinner for Eight, there are opportunities for people to gather in homes and build relationships and study the word and have meals together all week or every week long uh, throughout the year. So if you're interested in that, please let us know. Um, I've got a couple of just sayings that I go through when I read scripture. So whether it's today or whether it's in your personal time in the word, I'm going to throw these out there. Uh, They're important as we study scripture. Words have meaning. So when you see scripture and you see a word, they have meaning to those words. They're not just a, a word that's put in place for a reason. I often say context is king, right? Today I have a passage, it's five verses, but there's a context in these five verses that has so much more meaning and I need to read them in context. I can't just land on a verse and say, here's my meaning. And the other thing is scripture interprets scripture. Sometimes we find a passage that may not feel clear and we try to develop our own thought process, but the truth is uh, more clear scripture or less clear scripture is governed by more clear scripture. So if we're trying to figure it out, there's other scripture that will help us to find the meaning of it. Today we're in Colossians 1, 24 through 29. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to talk about how Paul lives a life and and has a heart of joyful sacrifice because of Christ for the church. Why does he live this way? So that the word might be fully known to people. And we're also going to talk about how God calls Christians to present everyone as mature in him. And this is done through our joyful sacrifice. You know, uh, the the verses 1 through 23 of Colossians 1 is all about Christ. Really, it's all, all about Christ. But it's so much all about Christ in these passages that it's important for us to recognize, man, we get to see the deity of Christ in 1 through 23 that all things are held together through Christ, right? That he is the head, which is the body. He is the head of the body, which is the church. Um, He is sufficient to reconcile broken, messy people to him. He is the sustainer of all things. All things were built through him and for him. And then as we move into verse 24, we see uh, that now that Paul has defined the gospel and, and really this idea of the gospel, right? I think we hear this term gospel. What is What is this gospel? And I think even in your head as you think about it, um, we get to process this idea, gospel. What is this? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the truth of, of the Savior that we have before us. It is that man was born with wicked hearts. And I, I hope we all hear this. You know, I've heard it that I was born this way. I think differently because I was born this way. And absolutely, you were born this way because we were all born with wicked hearts. We all inherently desire sin, right? You think about a child that continues to throw something on the ground when mom's handing it to him, right? And and so as a just God who is holy and set apart, he's got to punish punish justly. And there's a consequence for, for sin. And that consequence is death. It's a physical death and it's a spiritual death. We physically will die from this earth, but there is a spiritual death as a result. 
because he is a just God. But it doesn't end there, right? Jesus, uh, who is God, became man or God in flesh, came to this earth and lived on this earth. And he died a sacrificial death. He died a brutal death. He died that brutal death to take the place so we didn't have to experience that punishment. And I, I think it's important to recognize that he was beat and he was, he was punched and he was cussed at. He was mocked. They, they cast lot for his clothes. As he sit there, they put a crown of thorns on his head and, and made him bleed, right? He, we see earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed that the Father would take this from him because he didn't want to experience this death. But he did it so that mankind would be redeemed. I don't know where that came from. Um, so that mankind would be redeemed. That is the gospel that we would believe and repent. We would turn from our wicked ways and follow Jesus Christ. And I think it's imperative that we understand it and carry it with us. If you are saved, you understand the context of the gospel, that you were lost and now you are saved, and it's only as a result of the work of Jesus Christ. And so as, uh, as we discuss this idea of the church and the gospel and what is Paul communicating to us, I have one question for us as a church, and, and I know that we're all naturally going to have the Sunday school answer, and I don't want you to because I, I really want you to answer this question honestly. Honestly, what do you aspire to? What are your ambitions in life? Is it to have a successful career? Is it money, provisions, to be a great parent? To have a kid that's excellent at soccer or football or cheer? What do you aspire to? And I'd love you to think through that answer real quick. And kind of a good thought is where do you spend your time? Where are your investments? I'm going to shift gears and tell you a little story about a, a farmer that was sitting on the front porch, and he had some company over, and so picture this. He's a farmer. He's got open space. He's got trees, open land, and underneath this patio are some dogs, and so he's got company. They're sitting on this patio, and they're just dialoguing, and out of nowhere, one dog barks, and one dog takes off, and as that dog takes off, all of a sudden, the other dogs start barking and clamoring and, and playing with each other, and they begin to follow that other dog. And uh, that farmer says, let me tell you what just happened. He said, one dog barked and took off. He said, you're going to see the other dogs come back in about 10 minutes. And they're going to have their tail between their legs, and they're going to crawl back under the patio and take their assumed position. He said, but the one dog, he's going to come back with his head up and a rabbit in his mouth. I know, a rabbit in his mouth. And the difference is this. He was attentive. He had a goal, and he had his mind on that goal. And as a result, he accomplished what his mind was on. And I often think that this is the case with the church, right? That, that sometimes we're, we're, we're making noise and we're having fun, but it's not necessarily for the purpose of honoring Christ. Sometimes we're engaged and we're about him, but it doesn't always equate to wanting to honor him in our fellowship and honor him and with what we do. It's important to recognize that our actions, there is, they are a result of where our eyes are set. I don't want to get to the end of our lives and realize that we spent time building sandcastles that were last. I really don't. I don't want the church to be that way, and I don't want to be that way. Uh, so starting verse 24, Paul is going to explain how we should respond to the gospel. 
And here he is a guy that has admittedly said that he has sacrificed more, he has gave more, he has, he has accomplished more, he has worked harder as a result of the gospel. The Apostle Paul was compelled by the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ to live in such a way that he would endure more because of the gospel, right? He would sacrifice more because of the gospel. And, and, and as we read this book of Colossians, it, there's some debate. Who, who wrote it? I even asked some people and read some commentary. Did Paul write this book or did Epaphras write this book? And uh, Paul is writing this letter to the church of Colossae, and likely it's one of two reasons. If he wrote the book, or if he is the church planner of the church Colossae, he's probably writing in response to a people that, that are asking this question, if you're truly a messenger of God, why are you sacrificing? Why are you enduring this? Why, are, why is this the case, the life that you live is in such hardship, if you're truly a messenger of God? And what motivates you? And, and if he's not the guy that planted the church, then uh, he's probably writing this letter. He's explaining the trials that he faces, and he wants to communicate in such a way that has authority so that when they receive it, they believe that Paul is the real deal. They've seen him sacrifice for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I, as I process this message and this passage, you know, a few weeks ago, Chris Gray and I decided to train sermons, and man, I'm so thankful that I landed this one because there's so much meat in this. As I read it, it's like thriving with truth for the church. And I, I would love to have created a, a one, two, three-point sermon, but it's, it's not going to work that way. I would just picture that you went to a new city and you jumped on a big tour bus, and you're on that tour bus, and before you know it, uh, somebody's giving you information that you wouldn't have picked up on on your own, and so they're announcing another piece of information, or here's another thing about what's new, and I think that's a lot more how this is going to go. So read with me. Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Before I read, let me pray. God, thank you for, for your church, the church of Jesus Christ that we get to be a part of, to, to recognize that it's not about us here in Rockwall as Cornerstone, but it's about this global church of you that we get to be a part of, knowing that you are, you are building a chosen people that we get to be a part of something that you're doing that's so far beyond us. And Lord, I pray that in my inadequacies, you would proclaim your goodness through the work of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and that these words would come alive to all of us. I love you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So it says, uh, now I rejoice in my suffering. So Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my suffering for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for all ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone as mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully within me. 
You know, it's like the bus just took off and we're already seeing this passage. Now I rejoice in my suffering. Is Paul so disconnected that he's loving this masochistic, masochistic thought that he just wants turmoil in his life? Or, or is he above people and he's just enjoying this reality that uh, he gets to be holy in this response? Does he lack a care for the simple things of life and does he lack a care for people? And I'd say no, on the contrary. When we fall in love with the Lord, we actually begin to value these things more. When we fall in love with the Lord, we value people in our life and we value the simple things in our life more. And I would say that that's really the heart of Paul. He has come to a place that he loves the people and he, and he's, he loves the simple things even more. And, and I believe that he's begun to see God's beauty in all of these things. And it's simply because there's a joyful sacrifice that Paul makes, right? He, he knows that he's giving up something that he loves for something that he loves even more, right? How could he come to a place that is say, man, I'm okay to suffer in these things? Well, Paul loves seeing people come to Christ, and he loved them more than his, his personal freedoms, right? Paul loved the idea of a church being planted, and he loved them more than his personal freedoms, you see, we rejoice in our sufferings when what we're gaining in our suffering outweighs what we're giving up. Paul's sacrifice is outweighed by the church plant and people. And so he will endure it all day long. You know, I, I processed how to, how to illustrate this. Just in my life, I have a couple of areas that um, I've said, man, this is more important. This is more important for for the Lord than it is for me. You know, I, I, I have a, a disease that, uh, that the people that have this disease on average age of 65, there's an expiration. That, that that would put me at about 16 more years of life if I fit the average for this disease of Addison's disease. Um, Addison's disease is uh, your body doesn't produce cortisol and cortisol is essential for every organ and tissue. And so why do I share this? Uh, Cornerstone has gone through some really hard seasons of ministry. Ministry is hard in itself. And, and so my disease in some ways is so fragile that if I simply get the flu and I am nauseous and I vomit, i got to give myself a deep tissue and injection and go straight to the ER. And so it would be easy to remove stress. Stress is incredibly hard on my body. It would be easy for me to say, I'm going to remove stress of my life and no longer do ministry so that I could have my safe little setting over here and not have to worry about something taking my life early. And in the hard seasons, my wife and I had those conversations. But the decision to press on because we knew that the risk of sacrificing my life was outweighed by the response of people that were growing closer to the Lord. And that's, that's not about me. This isn't the Lord's in control, right? I mean, I, I could say that there's about 16 more years of my life, but any one of us could pass on the road today. And so we, we don't hold those numbers. I look at, I don't know if it was David, but that he would say, I should know the days of my life should, so that I could count them more preciously. And so uh, as we look at life and decisions, it's really about outweighing the sacrifice. And anything that advances his kingdom is far more important than anything that reaps for me. When I went into ministry, I remember making small decisions that, that would benefit. When, when I decided, hey, I'm going to do this because it edifies the body 
and, and I'm willing to make that sacrifice. It is far worth it. We went from making a lot of money as 22-year-olds to making almost nothing as 23, 24-year-olds in ministry. Um, and uniquely, my wife, you've heard it before, she went to Bible college and never dated a Bible major because she didn't want to be married to a pastor. <laughs> Go figure. Those were sacrifices that we knew that would be outweighed by the eternal benefit by those choices. She didn't see them at first, but now she does. Um, so as Paul, is, he's writing to the church of Colossae, he's recognizing that he's, he's rejoicing in his suffering, and he knows that his suffering benefits people because they, nurture, they are nurtured and cared for as a result of it. Right? This joyful sacrifice, um, it, it, is, it is well outweighed. Paul even takes it up a notch here, and he says this at that first verse, 24. He says, and he is completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. So on the surface, this is an incredible statement. Would, could Paul, what could Paul possibly complete or fill for what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What could Paul possibly offer that Christ didn't do in the, on the cross? Right? You, you can see it. Christ is on the cross, and he says, it is finished. Is not Christ at the right hand of his Father? He is. So what could Paul add to that? Well, I think it's, it's unique that he, he adds this idea that he brings truth through his communication. Right? On one hand, the work of salvation is complete by, the, by Jesus Christ. Jesus completes the work of salvation. But, but on the other hand, unless people hear it, there's no redemption for them, right? Martin Luther, he famously said, it wouldn't matter if Jesus Christ died a thousand times if no one heard the gospel. So what he is completing is what, what uh, not what Christ could do because the atonement was satisfied, but it's his efforts are bringing the gospel to bear in people's lives and even in our lives. He's saying, if my suffering helps bring glory to Jesus by seeing Jesus in my suffering so that people might believe, then it's all worth it. That I will suffer and endure at the cost of advancing the kingdom. It's almost like Christ suffered to accomplish salvation and we suffer to spread salvation. Did you hear that? He accomplished it, we suffer to satisfy it. You know, there have been times that I've shared the gospel with people, and, and one time I was in London, and it was shortly after 9-11, and I was sharing the gospel with a guy, and this guy was pretty, um, pretty adamant that it wasn't about Christ. In fact, he was a Muslim guy. He started to become angry, and at one point, point said, I don't like talking religion because it makes me angry and I'm not afraid to fight over it. And then I remember thinking, well, uh, you need Jesus. <laughs> and we talked about atonement and we continued to dialogue. And he said, uh, we're called to kill anyone that denies that Muhammad is the true prophet. And I thought, you need Christ. And the more I processed, I thought, if I die, I inherit eternity. If this guy die and the daughter on, his, on this kid, you know, the daughter on his lap and the family that he's connected with, if they die, 
they inherit an eternal consequence away from the Lord. Was the benefit of that guy knowing the Lord worth it? It was. I was so scared that my legs were shaking on this conversation. There's a team of 18 people that just went to Africa. My legs were shaking, but I kept thinking. I had to squat down just to keep my legs from shaking, and I kept thinking, this guy needs to know Jesus. And finally, he's getting a phone call. He sets the girl down on his lap, and he said, are you a Christian? And I thought, this is it. I'm going to die. But I thought, Lord, I'll answer that if he, if he asks me again. And out of nowhere, Claire Abdallah from Egypt, at maybe 80 years old, starts yelling at him. And I'm thinking, this is it. And she's like, he's an American boy and just has questions. And I'm like, no, he needs to know Jesus. And then our stop comes off, and we get off. And so the sacrifice of advancing the kingdom outweighs the cost of my comfort. I look at uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. You've heard this many times. He says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and by mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice it says living sacrifice. Right? In the Old Testament, a sacrifice was an animal that was, that was executed for the atonement of sin. Jesus has now fulfilled that sacrifice. Right? We, are not, we don't have to sacrifice animals because the perfect lamb has been sacrificed on our behalf. But then he says our bodies are living sacrifices. Isn't it unique that this idea of living sacrifice, and then he says do not be conformed to the world, that I am going to live in such a way to advance the kingdom beyond my comfort that is not like the world. And I, I think of, uh, you know, uh, the Reeses who have built a church in Papua New Guinea uh, who are hit cornerstone now. And at some point, they will go back, right? They, at some point, they face people's persecution, right? I've heard stories, not necessarily from them, but from the Chanteers that are also in Papua New Guinea, that when a family, maybe an individual is getting baptized, that there's a family member sometimes on the shore with a spear saying, if you get baptized, I'm going to spear you. You know, it's one thing for me for, for people to raise their hand and come to the altar and give their life to the Lord, but it's another thing to say, I'm ready to follow the Lord despite persecution. Paul is looking into the face of his trials, and he's saying it's worth it. Verse 25, I have become its, and notice it says its, which is the church's servant. Servant is a, is a great word that's used here, in my opinion. The, the Greek, the word is actually ministry, which the ESV uses. But, uh, but I like this idea of servant. When we think ministry, we think uh, minister, we think somebody that's going to wear a cloak or somebody that's vocational ministry, but servant really communicates this idea that somebody is indebted to Christ, right? We see Paul often refers to himself as a bondservant. And that idea of a bondservant is this, this truth that, uh, man, maybe somebody's going to go earn uh, or he, he owes somebody money, so he's going to come work for him. He's going to come live with him, and he's going to serve this master. And at some point, that servant recognizes that working for this master as a servant is far greater than his own life apart from that master. 
And, and in that time, a bond servant, you know, they'd put an owl, they'd go to the doorpost, they'd put a, uh, like an ice pick through the air to signify that he was a bond servant. He is now owned by this master. And so here, uh, Paul referenced himself, not here, but he referenced himself sometimes as bond servant. In other words, this idea that the life that he has under Christ, under the Lord, is far greater than the life he would have on his own. My question is, how do you see yourself? I have to ask this. Do I see some, myself as someone that reaps the benefit of the church? Or do I see myself as somebody that um, is indebted to Christ for the church? Now, I, to be honest, I don't no judgment. Um, we talk about things that I see the Lord doing. And um, my wife and I were talking this morning. Do you realize at Cornerstone that there were almost, actually, she was telling me that every weekend about 30 people um, serve in children's ministry. And then Stephanie had said, oh, there's almost 60 people that serve in children's ministry every week. Like, praise the Lord for that. Like, every week, there are 30 people that serve in children's ministry. I watch the number of people that serve throughout this building in community groups, on the Connect team, on the Cover team. That is people that have said, hey, I'm going to make decisions to be indebted to Christ for the body. But it doesn't end there. It goes to another level where I see people living in such a way in homes and in their community that advance the kingdom. Verse 25, 25 he says, I've become a servant according to God's commission that was given to you. According to God's commission is this specific assignment that Paul was given. He was given a, an assignment uh, for the church which there are assignments and responsibilities for the church at large, and then there are specific assignments for, the, uh, for individuals within the church. And I would say at large, make disciples. As a church, church family, hear me. We will all stand before the Lord on how we make disciples. Right? The Great Commission, go make disciples. We will all stand before him on that. Make disciples. Uh, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And, uh, and then I think there are specific uh, responsibilities that he gives uh, people in the church. And I, and I feel like those specific responsibilities are going to be lined up with your gift, the gift that the Lord has given you that advances um, his kingdom. Paul says, I am a servant of the church, and if I get to spend it in prison, that's okay because he's indebted to Christ. Why? Verse 25 at the end, it says, to make the word of God fully known. We get the privilege of being the vessel of Christ in the midst of this. I can't help but reading what Paul went through and how he lived and can't help reading, man, Lord, I, Bill Lucas has missed this. I have missed this even in my family's life. And so in some of that, there's some confession, like I get caught up in, in my stuff that's, you know, what I think is important. And I've missed it, even as a pastor. And I think, man, we've, we're all going to work at this and rub shoulders and grow in it together and trust that the Lord's going to shape us. Here's another question. How many of you are called to ministry? Raise your hand. Let me ask that again correctly. How many of all of y'all are called to ministry? Every hand should be up because God calls all of us to ministry. That's better. Thank you. Uh, and I think when we recognize that, we begin to see it. It's that question like, how do you see yourself? Are you indebted to Christ because he saved you? Are you indebted? Has is, is he paid the ultimate sacrifice for you and you have life and life to the full? 
Man, that's incredible. We walk out that door and there's a people group that don't have that. Right? We see it. I see it on social media. I see the fighting and the bickering and the complaining. We have the greatest gift ever given. And it's life. I can live this life 30, 50, 65, 85, 90 years. That's just the start of what he offers us in eternity. To think about this, right? Sometimes we're afraid of death because we haven't put our minds to eternity. We haven't put our minds to what's after death. But think about it. One day, there will be people who are his, who their lives, their souls have been bought and paid for, paid for by the work of Christ. One day, we will hang out in fellowship, in God's presence, worshiping God, feasting. It talks about feasting. So I don't know, I'm going to feed, I don't know, I'm going to worship in when I'm feasting. We will be amongst one, there'll be no longer any watches, no clocks, no time constraints. That he's gone, Jesus has gone to build a place for us. And that'll never end. There will be no more sin and no more brokenness. And no more of what we see of this earth. It'll be a new heaven and a new earth. That is incredible. I can't wait if I'm honest with you. That to me is something to look forward to. And then I recognize that I walk out that door and some people don't have that. And I ask this question, what am I willing to do to help them? Verse 26 says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wants to make known among his Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope and glory. Now... Right? What is this idea of the mystery is now revealed? You hear mystery, you think of something frightening or scary or eerie, or, but that's not how Paul's using this. Clearly, he's, he's got other thoughts. There's a few times that Paul uses this word mystery. I'm not going to go through them all, but you see when Paul's writing to Timothy, he's talking about the mystery of God manifest in the flesh. Um, in Romans 11, the, the mystery of Israel's unbelief. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, the mystery of lawlessness. But here... The mystery is about the church. This is the mystery that he is talking about. In the Old Testament, it was concealed. And in the New Testament, it is revealed. The the mystery is that Jews and Gentiles will be one people and understand the culture differentiation. They were, the, the, the Gentiles were outcast. And so the church was going to incorporate all people classes, all ethnicities. It was going to be about one chosen people, and that's the mystery that, that are going it, to, it's almost if I could illustrate it this way, in the 40s and 50s, right, in the South, in Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama, when civil rights movement was happening, and, and uh, you know, African Americans would get on the bus, and where do they have to sit? I heard it almost, the back of the bus, right, it was, it was the worst case scenario, it was the worst of worse, to sit in the back of the bus. Only who got to sit on the front of the, white, uh, front of the bus? I just told you, the whites. Until 1956 became a law that there was no more segregation. That mystery had been revealed, just like the mystery of the church has been revealed. Here's the difference. Now we're all on the bus. doesn't matter what ethnicity. And we're all in first class. And we're all on our way to heaven. Right? There's no more dividing walls. There's no more barriers. That is the point of the mystery that, that it's, uh, 
Nobody's outcast. The Jews, the ancient Jews of that time would have said to the, to the Gentiles, you could sit on the back of the bus, maybe. And that's not the case. It's now been revealed. We're all one people and we all get to be together forever, regardless. And, and if I'm honest with you, sometimes I still see this segregation in the church. You know where I see it the most? Political views and medical opinions. Did you get the antibiotic, you know, did you get the antibodies for COVID or did you not? And there's opinions about that. And they divide and I watch people pull against one another, right? Oh, I can't believe you voted for that president. I've literally watched people leave the church over this. There's a tension that exists sometimes within the church that's not even biblical. There's no reason for it. It's a one people with one purpose and we fight for togetherness because what the Lord has done for us. What does this mean for us today? Look around, the, look around the room. For those of you that are saved, we are together. And I know some of you, you don't know the others in the room. You really don't. And so it kind of feels hard to feel like, man, we're in this together. i got to fight for unity. It is a supernatural work that has taken place for each one of us. For those of you that are saved, that your soul has been bought and paid for, we will spend forever in heaven together and it won't end with no more sin. And today we are just the foreshadow to that. Verse 28 says, We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The goal of the church is that we would be servants to present everyone mature in Christ. Sometimes we see maturity as somebody that's learning scripture and memorizing scripture, has a wealth of knowledge of scripture, but that is not always maturity. And the reason it's not always maturity, because knowledge doesn't equate maturity. Obedience always does. I got six kids. I leave. I tell my kids, clean the, clean the downstairs. I come home. My kids have a few buddies over. They've, they've processed this idea of clean the house. They tell me, Dad, we, we have studied what you meant by that. We've even looked it up in Greek and, and have really worked hard to understand it. But we didn't clean the downstairs. Maturity happens when we step into obedience. Church, we have to get this. It's our job to proclaim. It doesn't hinge on the guy on the stage. It doesn't hinge on the youth pastor. And it really doesn't even hinge on the children's ministry work, uh, workers. It hinges on us as his people. And I think of the youth in the front row, and I recognize that right now you have the greatest influence for those of you that are in school. You have the greatest influence that you'll maybe ever have because you have peers that follow you and listen to you and you have relationships with. And if you didn't know, I came to know Christ because of a, because of a person that was sitting next to me in my senior year of high school. And I think of uh, what, it's lo- what it would look like to, to proclaim, right? Uh, for me, you know, if you live in a neighborhood, you have the biggest opportunity in front of you that you uh, may not even know. We, we lived in a couple of houses in Southern California. Don't tell anybody I said we're from SoCal. Um, the first house, we had a Catholic guy across the street, Catholic husband and wife with some kids, right? We just had some random, and we began to hang out in the front yard and build relationships with our neighbors. And, and before you knew it, Man, I'm, I'm riding with my neighbor. We're talking about the authority of Scripture who was raised Catholic. And I kept talking about the authority of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. And that family ended up coming to know the Lord, right? Our next-door neighbors were influenced by us. And 
whether they were involved in the church or not, but they ended up getting involved in the church. And then we moved, same thing. We had some same-gender friendly people across the street. We befriended them. We built relationship with them. The neighbor across the street was a single guy, and he was a little bit worldly, but I invested in him. If I saw him taking out his trash, I would take out my trash, and I would invest in him. The opportunity is huge. Love your neighbor as yourself. That means your literal neighbor. I would encourage us as a church to be super intentional amongst our, our neighbors. This word labor could mean agonizing, agonize or wearisome toil. Paul exerts himself in the midst of these struggles knowing that Christ is going to give him the strength. That if he takes one more step, Jesus is going to have to, to show up here. And, uh, you know, earlier I mentioned people that are faithfully serving. I would challenge you, if you are, it doesn't have to be for this church, hear me clearly, capital C Church, the global church, God is calling us to be a people that are engaged in his mission. And I promise you, I don't care if it's Cornerstone, but I do care if you're faithful and you're stepping forward in obedience to the Lord to begin to proclaim his goodness to people around you, we will celebrate because that's where maturity comes from. Those steps of obedience. I'm running out of time, but if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, you don't have to go there, but I'm going to tell you that Paul weathered the storm. Beaten, stoned. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, you can underline it or go to it, but I'm not going to read it. 24 through 28, that guy Paul weathered it. Why? Because he was indebted to Christ because of the gospel for the church, and the church didn't owe him anything. Now, I've heard people say, I don't need the church. Well, all through the scriptures I read, it's all about his people, which is the church, and we gather together, and we gather for a purpose. Christ, unless we zero, or church, unless we zero in on Christ, we will be just like the world focused on so many other things that tempt us. We must zero in on Christ. It's so easy, myself included, to be elbow deep in responsibilities that are important for us to provide for my family to be a good dad, but I've got to zero in on Christ. And I'm confident that the people who experience God's power in their lives are the people who work powerfully for God. Let me read that again. The people who experience God's power in their lives are the people who work powerfully for God. If you haven't experienced God's power in your life, then take a step. Let the Lord show up. You will see him and show up, and in response, you will work powerfully for him. As we talk about this section in Colossians 1, 24 through 29, I'm going to come back to it. Paul lives a life as a joyful sacrifice because of Christ for the church so that the word of God would be fully known. He also calls all Christians to present everyone as mature. And this is done through our joyful sacrifice. And I recognize that in this room that some of you might be on the fence. Some of you are processing this. Like, do I step in? Do I surrender to the Lord? Do I put my first step? Do I do, I do this? And I would say, I'll bet the ranch that if you take a step of faith, the Lord will show up. You take that step, you're going to see him respond, and it'll be worth it. And I promise you that you'll get to the end of your life, and you won't look back and say, man, I just built sandcastles that didn't last. And I, I also recognize this, right? Keith and Cheryl, every week we have a different couple that's over here in the prayer room. 
And as we kind of jump into communion and recognize that every one of us are going through something, like I need to go to them and ask for prayer that the Lord would strengthen me, that I would be this kind of living testimony to my family and to the world around me. And so if you have prayer requests, personal prayer requests, if you have just areas of growth in your life, I would encourage you to meet them. There's no, no counseling. There's no dialogue. Just go meet them in the corner when they're over here while worship is playing and ask for prayer. And when there's so many people over there, there are other people we're going to call to be praying for you so that people have prayed for in this church. It's an essential piece of who we are is to make sure. It's the reason why we can say George Sr., after four months of a lung collapse, is here today. Because the Lord chose to work through his people. I'm going to, um, I'm going to invite Sergi, uh, Ser- uh, Sergi up. Sergi, Sergi is from Moldova. And uh, he is a guy that is engaged in the global church in Moldova. And so as he comes up, you got a mic good. Um, I just want you to catch a glimpse of who he is and what the Lord is doing through him. And so you can squeeze in here. Um, tell me a little bit what life has been like in uh, Moldova since the Ukrainian war. Okay, so um, Moldova is about 2 million people. Uh, we've had so far since uh, last February, we've had uh, about half, oh, actually, uh, over 600,000 Ukrainian refugees go through Moldova. Uh, right now, about 100,000 refugees staying in Moldova. So um, uh, what changed is uh, we have a new ministry of sharing hospitality, sharing Christ with these people. Uh, And uh, even though uh, it's really a terrible situation, uh, all the churches became one. Ah, Praise God. Just like in the Bible. Nobody's fighting over, like, you're stealing my members, you're stealing my members, or something like that. It's more like, how can we help each other how can we be in it together so and that's what our church has done uh, during this crisis we've uh, supplied many churches with uh, uh, mattresses blankets pillows to create refugee centers yeah i'd love to know what it is that you're doing with all the refugees and collectively with the churches what does ministry look like for you guys um, uh, our church is called Kishinev Bible Church. Um, uh, our desire is to minister in our neighborhood, of course, in our uh, nearby community and beyond. Uh, and we serve beyond Moldova as well. Uh, so um, when we uh, meet with people, uh, sharing with them f- uh, food, we, like for the refugees, we have special services. We just invite them on a separate day and just share Christ and see the needs they have. Then we write down their addresses. And then during the week, we follow up. Uh, once a month, we try to supply them with, fo- with food, uh, leave our contact information so they know who we are, they know how to contact us. Okay. Uh, many just many in our area, in the church area, come uh, uh, to pick up the groceries themselves. Uh, and then we uh, drive north and south uh, of our uh, capital city to help other refugees. Right. Great. How exciting to see people connect. How can we be praying for, for the ministry there? Well, definitely pray for safety, safety of our families, uh, safety of all churches and uh, ministers. Uh, we uh, praise God for the peaceful sky, even though um, we're neighboring Ukraine where the war is. Uh, so uh, pray for, I guess, clarity and uh, pray for opportunities just to continue ministering to these people. And... Uh, uh, like your pastor said here, uh, discipleship is 
uh, a great opportunity that God has given us. So uh, we're trying to use it as uh, much as we can, and I would encourage you to use it uh, here as well. That's great. That's great. And uh, there's going to be a number up here. If, if you want to be a part of this and to be praying for the ministry of Moldova, if you'll text the number that appears, I guess it's a QR code. If you'll scan it, you can actually log on and get the newsletters. And I'd say it'd be a great opportunity for us as a church to be engaged in the ministry there, right? Because it's without prayer, right? Where does that lead us? So um, I'm going to pray real quick. And then the worship team's going to come up. And, uh, and then he... Uh, He's going to come back up and lead us in communion. And so I would say just keep that in mind. He's also got some flyers on the connect counter in the back if you just want to know a little bit more about the ministry out there. Let me pray. God, thank you for Sergi and his, his heart and his faithfulness to serve you. And I love that there's ministry there and here that advances your kingdom. And I love that the church... And Moldova has not been separated in the, uh, since the, the refugees have started to come, that they are really beginning to see that there's one church with one purpose. And so, Lord, would you go ahead of the needs there and advance your kingdom through their efforts? Would you, would you reach um, people that need to be reached? Would you create opportunities um, for people to embrace you and provisions for food, Lord? Would they be abundant? And then, Lord, just for safety as... Uh, more people come in and, and uh, as they have to deal with who knows the, the chaos that could be there. And, and I did hear that it seems to be peaceful. But, God, I do pray that you would watch over um, those that are there. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.